Well, hey, good morning, everyone. How are we doing? Good, good. Hey, do me a favor. If you have your Bibles with you, open them up to 1 John chapter 5. That's where we're going to be hanging out this morning. And by the way, if you don't have a Bible, um, just raise your hand. And we have ushers coming down the aisles right now that would love to get a copy of God's Word into your hand. We're going to be in the Bible all morning, so you definitely want one if you don't have one. And by the way, if you don't own a Bible, please take the, it home as our gift to you. We want everyone in our church to have a copy of God's Word. So just Raise your hand, and uh, we would love to get God's Word. First John, it's at the end of the Bible. If you kind of start at the end and work your way backwards, you'll find it really, really quickly. And uh, my name is Calvin. I'm the lead pastor here at Harvest, and uh, I have um, been away from you for the last couple of weeks as our summer ended. And uh, if you've been at our church for the last few weeks, um, you know that last week, Pastor Taylor preached, and then the week before that, Pastor Jordan, uh, who is our high school pastor, he shared God's Word. And then a couple weeks even before that, Pastor Jake, our 20s pastor, preached. And I just want you to be encouraged with the reality that isn't it such an amazing Amazing thing that we have so many young pastors and leaders in our church who love God's word and are committed to opening it, to preaching it faithfully, and preaching it in a way that's impactful. Like, isn't that a cool thing? And I just hope that you have confidence that whether it's 20s ministry, junior high, high school, whatever we're engaging in, there is a seriousness and love for God's word that's going to be at the forefront. A um, couple of things that I want you guys to be aware of as we enter this ministry year that's really exciting. Um, we had this summer our largest ever um, small group signups. Um, we had over 400 new people sign up for small groups. And uh, just to give a little bit of context to that, our second largest year of new people joining small groups was about nine years ago when we moved from international aid into this building. And if you were at our church at that time, you'll remember our church grew about 500 people in the space of one weekend. It was nuts and insane. And that summer, we had about 250 new people sign up for small groups. This year, we have 400. So between our 20s ministry and our uh, adult small groups, we have almost 1,400 people um, uh, committed to gathering together in community in our church. Isn't that cool? And uh, yeah, we can celebrate that. Let's be excited about what God's doing. Um, and then I'm going to steal a little bit of the small group thunder. But if you're in a small group this year, what we are all doing together as a church in every small group is we are dedicating the fall to growing in our prayer life with the Lord. We're going to do a book study together, all of us in our groups, all together to deepen and increase our prayer life. And I just get excited about the idea of that many people um, growing in prayer, thinking about what God might do in our church and our community. Um, another thing, um, junior high and high school ministry do kick off tonight at our Grand Haven campus. Uh, it's 5 to 6.30 for our junior hires, and um, it's 7 to 8.30 for our high schoolers. And I was on the phone with them yesterday because I'm like, you realize it's about to rain for the next three days, right? And usually it's a party in the parking lot where there's all of these games and toys outside. And Jordan, our high school pastor, is like, we've already got it covered. We're moving everything indoors. The party is going to happen. So here's what I would say. If you have a high schooler or junior hire, commit to getting them there tonight. Let's start off the year well. Get them there. Get them connected with their leaders. If you know a high schooler or junior higher that you think might need to be involved in a Christian community, invite them. Have your kids invite them. If you don't know a junior higher or high schooler, but you like see one riding their bike as you're headed to church, just grab them, put them in your car. No, don't do that last one. That's not a great idea. But uh, we're so excited about what God's going to do. And um, let's lean into that together. 
And then the other really exciting thing we get to do, um, which is more um, kind of connected to our time together, is we're um, laying out a new preaching series that we're doing this fall. And uh, I just want you guys to know that being a pastor at this church, one of the most stressful parts of my job is working through what are the major preaching series we're going to do. Like it keeps me up at night, it stresses me out, and here's why. There's so many people at our church that are going through different seasons of life, different circumstances, different stages of life, and I so desperately want our time together to be valuable and helpful and impactful. And through a lot of prayer and discussion and talking with our elders and our staff, um, we have landed on this fall, we are going to commit to working through the 10 commandments one at a time. So what that means is, Next week, we'll be in the first commandment. The following week, we'll be in commandment number two. We're going to do them one per week, and that's going to bring us all the way to December and our Christmas series. So we are going to lock in to the Ten Commandments. And so this week's a little bit different. This is more of a vision casting week and and to explain why we are headed where we are headed. And I think 1 John 5 captures so perfectly kind of the heart of your leaders for our church in this season. Here's what it says, 1 John 5, 1 through 4. It says this. It says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. All right, so here's the big idea for this morning and really for this whole series. It's this. It's that we need to be so careful not to divorce obedience from relationship. We need to be so careful not to divorce our obedience to God from our relationship with God. And so I need to say this right off the top. Obedience to God's law does not save us. We are not saved by works. We are saved by faith. God is not like Santa Claus, right? There is not a heavenly good kid list and a bad kid list. We don't arrive at the pearly gates in heaven one day hoping that we are on the good kid list and we're good enough to have entrance into heaven. We are saved by grace through faith in the person and work of Jesus. And we see this right in verse 1. It says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. How do we become alive to God? How do we become part of God's family? It's through faith. Right, So before all of my hyper-Calvinist friends here pull up their email browser and start writing the email that I am teaching work salvation, take a breath, I'm not. We are saved by faith. Salvation is the work of God on our behalf. God gets all the glory all the time in every aspect of our salvation. If you're clear on that, say I'm clear. Awesome, we're all on the same page. Here's the danger. The danger occurs in how do we define our relationship with God. Who sets the terms of what our walk with God looks like? Or maybe even more specific, our problem is it's easy for us to minimize the law of God and obedience to God, and our relationship with Him becomes very, very subjective and vague. You know, we minimize God's law and His standard all the time. They uh, came out with a study, you guys will like this. Do you know that more American Christians have memorized by heart the six main ingredients of a Big Mac than do the Ten Commandments? Do you know that that's a thing? Right, that's sad on a lot of different levels, I would argue. 
Uh, can I ask you a question? If this became Pop Quiz Sunday at church, could you name the Ten Commandments by heart? Do you have them memorized? Or, or think about even how we talk about our relationship with God. How do we communicate to others about our faith, right? A couple kind of primary ways is, well, Jesus lives in my heart. And that's very, very vague and subjective language. And did you know that's not even true? Do you know that Jesus, the eternal son of God, right now is in the throne room at heaven being worshiped by angels and saints and interceding for us on our behalf? Jesus doesn't live in our heart. His spirit does. We receive his Holy Spirit. So that's the primary way we talk about him maybe, and that's not even true. But I would say even the more primary way is I have a personal relationship with Jesus. Right? My relationship with God is personal, and that's amazing, and that's great, and that's true, but it is also very vague language. And the danger is, is if we keep our relationship with God in this place that is vague, what happens is, is we tend to settle for wanting a relationship with God that's all on our own terms. I want to do what I want, I want to live how I want, and I want to know that there's a big guy up in the sky looking out for me, that when things get really bad, I can reach out to him and send an SOS, and he's going to have my back. But, but I'm the one defining what that relationship looks like. When I need God, I'll go to him, but it's all about kind of me and what I want. And church, look at me. That was never how God intended our relationship to work with him. So let's break down what John is saying here. Look at this. It's so clear in the text. It says, everyone who believes that Jesus Christ has been born of God and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. So here's what uh, John is saying. And by the way, remember, John, what was the disciple whom Jesus loved, he was the closest circle of three that Jesus had in his life when he was on earth ministering. If there was anyone who knew what it looked like to love Jesus, we're hearing from the best source in John. And he goes, listen, anyone who has been born of God is part of God's family. And if you're born of God, you love others who are in God's family. But how do we love God and how do we love others? We see it in verse three, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. When we walk in obedience to God, that is practically how we love God and others. So we live in this tension of even though obedience does not save us, the way we love God and one another is through obedience to God. All right, do me a favor, turn to your neighbor and say that love is more than a feeling. Right? And if you're like me, you've got that Boston song playing in your head right now, maybe the greatest rock song ever, but uh, I'm with you. But it is, it's more than a feeling. So what I wanna do right now is I wanna take some time and talk about why we get this confused and some confusion we have about the Old Testament law of God. Here's the first point of confusion. Wasn't Jesus always in conflict with the law followers? Right, if, if we're called to, to follow the law, but, but you remember if you, when Jesus was on earth, the people that he fought with and argued with all the time were the Pharisees. And they followed the law, that was their thing. They were super intense about it. In fact, they would set up fences around the law, other laws that you couldn't break so that you wouldn't get even close to breaking the law. So if the Pharisees were, were intense about the law and they were the enemies of Jesus, you see this math equation start to work. Doesn't that somehow make the law bad? Well, here's the misconception. Jesus's issue with the Pharisees was not that they kept the law. It was the heart behind why they kept the law. 
The Pharisees kept the law not because they loved God, but because they loved themselves. And they kept the law for their pride and for their power and to have influence. It didn't come from a place of humility or love of God. The greatest example of this is when Jesus tells the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18. Jesus says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The issue wasn't the law, it's that they were using the law for their pride. Like I've even heard people say, man, like the reason I love Jesus is because Jesus is a rebel just like me. Like he was always breaking the law and upsetting the religious system. And it's like, yeah, that's not exactly true. You know that? Like Jesus never once broke the law. He kept the law perfectly. Did he point out the flaws in the leaders and the religious system? Absolutely. But he was a law follower. And I'm kind of like getting a nose ring and vaping is a different kind of rebel than what Jesus was. I promise you that, right? We need to be careful about how we talk about Jesus. Here's the second point of confusion. Um, Didn't Jesus make the law obsolete? Right? And another point of confusion is this idea that Jesus came and he fulfilled the law, which is absolutely true. And so Christians are like, I thought this Old Testament stuff doesn't actually apply anymore. Well, the answer to that is kind of both yes and no. And so we need to take a moment and pause here. And I need to help explain briefly how the Old Testament law was set up. And so we can understand what parts maybe aren't applicable anymore, but which parts definitely are. So in the Old Testament, there were three aspects to the law. There was the civil law, right? And this is the idea that God established Israel as a nation. And uh, this nation was going to go into a pagan Canaanite land. And God's like, "Um, you're going to look different than all of the other nations. I'm going to set you apart. The way that man relates to God is going to be through this country. So we're going to look different. We're going to have different customs. We're going to treat people different. So it's like, hey, the, the food that all the pagan Canaanites eat, you're not going to eat that food. The way they worship, you're going to worship differently. But then there was also a bunch of the law in the Old Testament that was simply how as a country are we going to run, right? God set up a welfare system. Hey, you're going to leave some grain at the edges of your field for the poor. So if people are hungry, they can feed from you. How are we going to take care of orphans and widows? How how are we going to deal with land disputes? You know that there's even a law in the Old Testament that it, it talks about what you owe your neighbor if their donkey falls in a hole that you dug, right? It's very, very specific. This is how we're going to interact with each other. Okay, but you need to understand that after the resurrection of Jesus, the people of God were no longer defined by a single nation or country, but now it would be through faith in the risen Messiah, the Son of God, sealed by the Holy Spirit. So what happens in early in the book of Acts is Peter gets this vision from God and it's all of the meat that used to be unclean that in order to separate themselves, the Israelites didn't eat. And Jesus goes to Peter and like, hey, this isn't unclean anymore. 
It's not through a single nation. It's through faith in the Messiah. So, so we don't follow the civil laws. Those have been completed in Christ. The second is the ceremonial law. And this is how God's people dealt with their sin and made themselves presentable before God. This is all of the sacrifices that they would have to give. This was the rules about the festivals. This was the rules about the ceremonial cleaning they would have to do to even go in the temple. And the whole idea was is that sin makes us unclean and we've got to be made right before we can enter God's presence and worship him. Well, praise the Lord, Jesus is our righteousness, amen? And so he has completed the ceremonial laws, right? When Jesus died on the cross, the veil was torn. There was no more separation between God and man. We're told in Hebrews that we can enter the throne room of grace with confidence that we have direct access to God because Jesus makes us clean before God. It's completed. Okay, but then there's this third aspect of the law, which is the moral law. And this is the law that reveals to us God's nature and character and what he demands from those who follow him and have a relationship with him. The Ten Commandments are the greatest and most succinct picture of this moral law. And this law is both fulfilled but still unchanging. Jesus perfectly kept the moral law. He never once sinned. And that's why we inherit his righteousness. We can have a relationship with God. The Bible says that we are hidden in Christ. Like he fulfilled this on our behalf, but God does not change. His character is unchanging. And just because we are forgiven in Christ, it doesn't mean that his standard for us all of a sudden does not apply. This is still what God calls us to be as his people who love him and honor him by following his moral law, right? Jesus says in Matthew 5, he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus did not make the moral law of God obsolete, Okay, so here's the third maybe misconception or confusion point. Aren't we free from the law? Like, I thought Jesus made us free. And again, the answer is both yes and no. We are free from the penalty of the law. We are free for the guilt that the law brings. In fact, a major reason God gave us the law was to point out our need for Jesus, that we cannot perfectly possibly keep God's law, but he sent his son to do what we could not do. But that doesn't give us an excuse to neglect God's law. This is Romans 6. Paul writes, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Hey, church, you know how sin is defined in the Bible? It's lawlessness. The definition of sin is breaking the law of God. And if Paul in the New Testament is saying, hey, if we've died to sin, we cannot still live in sin, that by definition means that God's moral law definitely still applies. And, and church, you need to understand this was the war that Paul fought in the early church. Think about how hard this would have been for Paul. So Paul goes into all of these new cities and towns across the Roman Empire, and he's starting these churches. Half of the churches are Jewish people who believe if you're going to have a relationship with God, you need to follow all of the Old Testament laws, all of the civil laws, all of the ceremonial laws. So they're like, Paul, you need to tell these Gentiles they need to get circumcised and they need to eat like us and they need to honor our festivals. Like you can't have a relationship with God unless you keep the whole law. And the Gentiles are like, I'm not excited about that idea at all. 
And and Paul's like, no, 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 it's about following the moral law of God, but these other laws have been fulfilled and completed in Jesus Christ. It's through faith and, and God is doing a work that's bigger than just the nation of Israel. The Gentiles, on the other hand, they're coming to faith in Christ and have no idea what God requires of them, have no category for a moral law. So Paul's like, you, you need to flee sexual immorality. You need to change how you live and how you work and, and how you treat one another to humble yourselves and to follow who God is. This was the battle that Paul was fighting. So here's what I want to do with our time. I want to talk about five reasons that you and I need to take the Ten Commandments seriously. This is why we're diving into this message this fall. Here's the first Um, Because God does not change. We need to take the Ten Commandments seriously because God does not change. The nature and character of God is unchanging. And by the way, that's a really good thing. Do you know that? Well, like think for a second with me. Imagine if God was still undecided about you. If God's like, I don't know, I'm going to decide in a little bit how I feel about them, right? Imagine the stress and anxiety and fear that that would bring in our relationship with God. But God is not like that. So when he says we're forgiven, we are always forgiven. His promises are eternally true. His character is eternally true. He is eternally good and righteous and just and loving. We can rest in the reality that God does not change. One of my favorite passages in the entire Old Testament is in Deuteronomy 4, where where Moses is talking to the Israelites. And look what he says. This is amazing. He says, See, I have taught you statutes and rules, rules as the Lord God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. So this is right before the Israelites are about to go into Canaan. He says, keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear of these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to them as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? See what Moses is saying? He's like, guys, when you enter the land, these Canaanite godless people, they're going to see how you live and they're going to be like, wow, their God is wise and he's brilliant and he's understanding and he's good and he's amazing. He's like, it's the law of God's going to reveal his character. And they're going to be like, man, this is a great people because the way that God has designed this nation to live is better than anything else in the history of the world. Okay, you want to know what's amazing? Three, four, five thousand years later, do you know that all of Western society today is still founded on Judeo-Christian moral ethics? It comes from this law. So no matter what has changed in the world, all the time that has passed, a free, good, safe, flourishing society is still founded on the exact principles laid out to us in Scripture. Like, isn't it amazing that even people that would deny God's existence that hate God, that think he is obsolete and and incomprehensible would still readily admit that the best, safest, most prosperous way to live is founded on his principles? Like that should be massively encouraging to our faith that all this time later, our society is founded, is rooted in the exact ethics and moral principles that God lays out in his word. Do you know why that is? It's because God is awesome 
and he's unchanging and he's wise. And the very thing that Moses promised the Israelites still comes true today. God does not change and he is perfectly good. Here's the second reason we should value the 10 commandments um, because Jesus valued them and he reinforced them. The 10 commandments were the foundation for Jesus's teachings on morality and ethics. In fact, not only did Jesus teach on the Ten Commandments, he actually raised the bar or raised God's standard of holiness. Did you know that? Like there's this famous uh, part in his Sermon on the Mount where, where he takes the Ten Commandments and he elevates God's standard. He says, the law says do not murder, but I say if you have hatred in your heart for someone else, you've already broken the law and committed murder in your heart. He says the law says do not commit adultery, but I tell you if you have lust in your heart towards someone else, you have already committed adultery. He takes the law and elevates God's standards of holiness. He did not minimize it. He did not negate it, he used it as the backbone of his teaching and elevated the Ten Commandments. There's another interaction Jesus has with a rich young ruler. And Jesus is teaching and this wealthy, powerful young man comes out and he's like, hey, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You know what Jesus does? He goes, you know to the law, you know the law. And then he just starts listing the Ten Commandments. And um, what's interesting is, is he's not saying that's how you get saved. He's actually getting after the heart of the rich young ruler. But what he does do is point to the law as God's standard for obedience and relationship with him. He valued them. He taught them. And so church, like, let's talk very, very simply, right? How many of us would say that part of our calling in life as Christians is to be more like Jesus? Who's with me there? Right, right? Yeah, that should be pretty obvious. Um, Jesus perfectly followed the Ten Commandments. So if we want to grow in being more like Christ, we need to take these seriously because Jesus valued them. He taught them. He followed them. They were important to him. Here's the next one. Um, because all relationships have defined rules, all healthy relationships have defined rules, right? You get that, right? If you're going to be in a healthy relationship with anyone, there's going to be rules that are established and defined, Right, let's talk about me and my marriage and my relationship with Mary. Like we have rules that we follow. Like, like here's one, um, we kind of know where each other are throughout the day. And if plans change, we call and let each other know. Right, like if it's a Friday night and all of a sudden after work, I just don't show up that night and I don't call and I get back Saturday morning and Mary's like, where the heck were you? And I'm like, oh, I went camping with my buddies. I didn't think it'd be a big deal. How's that gonna go for me, yes or no? Right? We've got to find rules that make our relationship healthy. Here's another one. Um, big financial decisions we make together. Right? If I come home from church after preaching and all of a sudden the movers are at my house and they're unloading all of my stuff and Mary's like, Cal, while you're at church, I found this awesome house on Zillow and I just pulled the trigger. Right? That's going to be a problem because we have rules that say these things we do in partnership. Um, I remember a couple months ago, I had a buddy call me and, and he was like, dude, I'm so pumped. I'm just leaving the dealership. I just bought a motorcycle and it's got a little side pod for my wife. She's going to love it. I'm headed home to show her. And I was like, uh, did you tell your wife you were getting this motorcycle with the side pod? And he's like, no, I'm going to surprise her. It's going to be amazing. Right, 25 minutes later, he sends me a text. I am headed back to the dealership, right? My wife was not as thrilled about this decision as I was. That's a true story actually happened, right? Like there's rules, right? You have rules in your work relationship. 
Your job has expectations that you need to follow or else you're not going to work there anymore. And by the way, you have the expectation that if you're working hard and doing what they want, that you're going to get paid, right? If your job just decides, hey, I'm no longer paying you, you're not going to work there anymore. In order for a healthy working relationship, there needs to be rules. And church, the same is true with God. Look at verse three. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And my fear is, is if we keep our relationship with God in this place that is vague, where we set the terms, our relationship with him is never going to be healthy and produce good fruit because we are neglecting the rules of engagement. Here's the fourth reason. Um, Because love-driven obedience is the path to flourishing. We follow the law of God because love-driven obedience is the path to flourishing. Look at verse three again. He says, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments aren't burdensome. And you have to get this, this is important. It has to be driven out of a heart of love. It can't be pride-driven obedience. That was the Pharisees' problem. It can't be obligation-driven obedience. That's gonna make your faith really, really dry and stale. But when our heart is in a place where it's like, man, God is good and he is faithful and he has given me more than I could ever hope or dream or deserve, he is saved me when I was dead in my sins. And because I love him, I'm going to follow him because he knows what's best for me. That will lead to your best possible life here on earth. I mean, think about it. Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He's saying, come to me if you want to experience life and life abundantly. And God gave us 10 commandments to start. That's not too many, right? That seems pretty reasonable. And I think when we think of the Ten Commandments, we think of, oh man, these rules and regulations that I have to follow. God's such a killjoy. He only gave us 10. Do you know that in America right now, there's over 20,000 laws just dealing with the issue of gun control? Think about that. Like there are hundreds of thousands of laws in our country. God started with 10. It's not burdensome. Here's what I want you to do for a second. Imagine with me, Imagine for a moment how much better our world would be if everyone honored the Ten Commandments. Can you imagine it? Imagine if there was a world that we lived in where everyone loved and honored God and God alone as their first priority. Imagine how much less anxiety there would be if no one ever lied. If you were never worried about getting taken advantage of. If there was no rebellion against parents and uh, Adultery, if families stayed together. Imagine if there was no more murder. Have you guys all seen that story about that teacher who was abducted and murdered? Like, it's terrifying, our world, and it's heartbreaking, right? Imagine if we lived in a world where there was no more jealousy and and, and coveting and taking the Lord's name in vain, lying, like, kind of feels like heaven, doesn't it? It's almost like God knows what is best for us. Here's the best way I can explain it. Um, Last Friday night, my wife and I, we had um, Pastor Chris and Carolyn and their kids over for dinner. And they just came over, we hung out, we sat on our deck. Well, their youngest, Gabe, really wanted our youngest, Judah, who's seven, to come over and do a sleepover. So Carolyn's like, hey, Gabe's really been wanting Judah to come spend the night. Can he come do a sleepover? Judah was like, please, can I go? Can I go? And we're like, great. He can spend the night Friday night and uh, we'll pick him up sometime Saturday. So he went home with the molars and I was super pumped. They went home at eight and about 1020, uh, Pastor Chris called me and, and he's like, Cal, we got a problem. Judah is losing his mind. He's all out of sorts. He wants to come home and, and he's just crying. So I'm like, well, let me talk to Judah. 
And I'm like, Judah, what's going on? And he's bawling, I want to come home. I want mommy and daddy. I'm scared. And I'm like, Judah, you have nothing to be scared of. You do sleepovers with your cousins all the time. You're seven years old. You're getting a little old for this. Like, you'll be okay. Just spend the night. You're going to want to play with Gabe tomorrow. Like, you're going to have a great time. You just got to get over your emotions. No, I want to talk to mom. (laughs) Perfect. So Mary picks up the phone, has the same exact conversation. He's inconsolable. Finally, we, we give in, and Mary and Chris, they met somewhere and picked up Judah. Judah came and slept at our house. Well, Saturday morning at about 7.15, Mary and I wake up to Judah sobbing again. Hey, Judah, what's wrong? I made a huge mistake. I want to go back. Like, I, I don't want to be here. I want to be at the sleepover. And we were like, man, like, I tried to tell you what was best for you. You wouldn't listen, so you're going to have to live in this decision. And, and church, here's the thing. We laugh about it when it's our kids because they're so obvious. But I know for sure that the moments in our lives that have the most shame, pain, and regret comes from the moments we did the exact same thing to God. I know what you call me to. I know what your desire is for me. I know what your standard is. And I'm going to do my own thing anyways. I'm not going to listen. And it leaves us with a lot of pain and a lot of tears. God loves us. His law is for our good and for our flourishing. We have to believe that, church. Then here's the last one. Because obedience is a key component to our worship. This is all over scripture. They're not on the screen, but just listen along. This is 1 Samuel 15. It says, Has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. He's like, I don't want your acts of worship or or the things you do. I want your heart and your obedience. John 14, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Jesus says, if you love me, you will walk in obedience. Romans 12, 1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. Well, what Paul's saying is, is the way we worship God, it's not just a moment here where we sing. And I was actually talking with Pastor Taylor about this this week. I think we as Christians have a way too small vision of worship. We think that worship is when we come together at church and sing songs. And Taylor's like, actually, a more appropriate name for our worship ministry is actually a praise ministry because singing praises to God is part of worship, but worship is truly an all-consuming thing that our entire lives are involved in. And Paul's like, offer your lives as a sacrifice to God. Live for his glory. Follow him. That is your spiritual act of worship. We make worship way smaller than what God has intended our worship to be. We can't, I would argue, you cannot be a sincere worshiper of God and walk in bold disobedience to him. And church, I've pastored long enough in this community to know that all the time we deal with people who want God in this vague, um, subjective place because they want to do whatever they want and believe they're getting God's blessing when they're not. Like I've had to tell people, there is no way that God told you to do the exact opposite thing of what his word has called you to. God does not change. But if we can keep it vague and he's just this guy in the sky who has my back, then we can kind of do whatever we want. Uh, Kevin DeYoung, he's a theologian and pastor. He put it best. He goes, biblical freedom is not doing whatever you want. It's having the ability to do what you should. We were created to know and love God. And we are free in Christ to now pursue that once again. 
So here's the closing question I want to end our time with together is why this series? Why right now for our church this fall? And here's why. Because we care deeply about growing in maturity together. Right? Um, There's a a very popular phrase in our culture. It's actually a poker term. It's called going all in. Right? And it's this idea that when you have a hand that you know is a winning hand and it's the best, like you put all of your chips into the table, you're betting the house on this hand. Well, church, look at me. I am all in on the truth that when we humble ourselves and make Jesus Christ as Lord and choose to walk in obedience, all of the peace and joy and confidence and love that our hearts long for are found in Christ. And I would argue that the deepest pain, regret, sorrow, isolation we feel is when we walk away from God's good and perfect protection for us. And so one of the things I'm so excited about is I said at the beginning of the message, we had our biggest ever signups for small groups in like the last eight or nine years. Um, And what I love is, is when that first happened eight or nine years ago, we weren't mature enough to handle it. We didn't have the leaders. We were drowning. We were scrambling. It was like a, a huge stress for us. Well, 10 years later, I'm seeing in our church, we've got the leaders, we've got the training, we've got the equipping to happen where we're growing in maturity, which I believe is going to lead to more people thriving in small groups. And what I want more for us is not just to be a church that's mature, but to be a church full of people who are growing in maturity. Like, I don't want you in the same place you were a year ago or three years ago or five years ago. I want more peace, more joy, more hope in your life. And that will be found as we lean in together. So um, before I pray for our fall, here's what I would ask. Um, Just one favor, Um, hang with us this fall. Obviously, if we're going through a commandment a week, um, we're going to be building off one another. These things are connected. So get to church, prioritize the right things in your life. And if for whatever reason, sickness or family obligation, you can't be at church, follow along online, take the time, be disciplined to hang with us because I want you to have the full benefit of this series. And that's only gonna happen if we're all in it together. If you're with me, say I'm with you. Awesome, let's pray. Dearly Father, God, I thank you for uh, this time. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the law that you've given us, God. And I think of that passage in Deuteronomy where you say that it's through your law that your wisdom and goodness and kindness is revealed. God, I just pray that we believe that. God, I just pray that we would take these seriously, that we would lean in. And God, I just pray for freedom and growth and a lot of life change for this church, this people, this fall. We love you. We need you. Would you help us, God? It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.